here we are for another War on the Rocks podcast. Uh, we got a great group here. We have Stephen Tankel of American University and, of course, a senior editor at War on the Rocks. We have Joshua White from the Stimson Center. And we have Andrew Small at... Uh, just gave me a look. <laughs> Andrew Small at the German Marshall Fund, who is the author of a new book called The China-Pakistan Axis. And uh, that comes out in February, just a few weeks here in the U.S. And we're going to be talking about not just the relationship between these two states, um, but the sort of region as a whole, not looking at, at it you know, in a sort of bifurcated way of South Asia and East Asia that a lot of people tend to, but sort of as a region as a whole. And we have a group that's really well-equipped to do that here because not only did Andrew just write a book on this, uh, but Stephen and before him Josh occupied... Uh, uh, advisory positions in the Department of Defense and OSD policy working on sort of that region of the world. So, uh, Andrew, why don't you just start by telling us a bit about your book and why you chose to write it. Well, I started working on, on China and Pakistan for, for a few reasons. Um, it's a relationship that has been so little studied, it's so poorly understood, um, and yet is important in a few um, really in important areas, um, both in Chinese foreign policy and for Pakistan. Uh, first of all, the China-Pakistan relationship is really the only one in Chinese foreign policy that looks like a friendship. Um, it's the only Pakistan is the only country that the Chinese military, Chinese intelligence services um, uh, have any un- deep seated level of trust in. And so when you're looking at Chinese foreign policy over the long term, when you're looking at questions um, over China's global power projection capabilities, uh, where does it trust to set up um, its its naval facilities over over the long term? Which intelligence services does it trust um, when it's dealing with um, its the future of its position in, in the Middle East and in Southwest Asia? And Pakistan's pretty much the, the only place that it can turn. Um, Pakistan is also the main place where China encounters uh, the uh, the threat of Islamic militancy. Uh, the main group that has targeted China in the last decade has effectively been headquartered in Fatah, um, and Pakistan over the longer term has been the main conduit um, for uh, Uyghur militants from, from Xinjiang um, connecting with jihadi networks across the region. It's also Pakistan functions as the broker for China's dealings with extremist groups across the region and um, religious groups across the region. Pakistan has been the broker for China's relations with the Taliban. Um, It's even uh, rumoured to have been the connecting point for some of China's dealings with uh, Al-Qaeda. So it's it's really the collision point for uh, where China's rise meets Islamic militancy um, uh, across across this region, but it's 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 the primary focal point, I'd say, in in the world for that as well. And the other question that I think is is interesting to explore on this is the question of China's leverage over Pakistan. Uh, China's one of the only countries that really has uh, weight. Um, on a set of questions in, in, in Pakistan that can uh, put in requests to the Pakistanis to uh, take action on certain things that they wouldn't otherwise be willing to do. Um, so when you're looking out from, from the US perspective and you're looking at additional sources um, of influence over Pakistan, particularly when it comes to questions um, 
uh, of Afghanistan post-2014, uh, China's one of the, the only uh, additional sources of, of leverage that can be brought to, to, to bear there. Um, historically, it, it has, of course, been a useful conduit when, been, when there's been a risk of war in South Asia. China's been an important channel for, for, for influencing Pakistan, whether it's um, Cargill or, or indeed any of the, the crises that have taken off um, in the region. Um, but the big question now is, is looking out post-2014. Uh, China's just gone through over the last year probably the, mo the, the greatest uh, level of concern over terrorism within China, and not just in Xinjiang, um, across major Chinese cities, um, and it's turned terrorism in China into an issue of, of extremely high uh, salience. And so when China looks out in Afghanistan and Pakistan across uh, the next stre stretch of time, um, it's, it's starting to think very differently um, about how it wants to approach uh, the conditions that have fostered some of these groups operating um, in the region. Okay. Well, there's a lot there. Uh, Stephen, I want to ask you, um, you know, at sort of the height of our operations in Afghanistan, we were getting frustrated with Pakistan and the United States for a number of reasons, mostly their sort of training, equipping, sponsorship, <laughs> sheltering of an insurgent, insurgency movement that was killing our troops on a daily basis. Frustrating and, being a nice diplomatic, yes. understated choice of terms, yes. And so we're frustrated with that, and Pakistan's response was, with, which I found sort of remarkable, but in Pakistan, you know, different way of thinking about things. Uh, we need a better friend in the United States. We need an all-weather friend. And uh, maybe China is going to be that. From a U.S. policy perspective, I know you can't talk in you know, any detail on what you've been working on in government, but just looking at U.S. policy as, as Washington surveys this relationship between China and Pakistan and how's it, how, how it's developing, how, does, uh, how, do, how do you see it fitting into our bigger regional interests and our yeah. global interests? Uh, I, you mean... It, the U.S.-China relationship vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan or U.S.-Pakistan? The Pakistan-China relationship. Um, well, I mean, at first I think it's important to, to note that, that, as Andrew's noted in his book, China's been, you know, the all-weather friend for, for Pakistan for, for quite some time, um, going back well before 9-11, um, at times when, you know, the U.S. has cut off assistance or has... Uh, sanctioned Pakistan, China has continued to provide, you know, steady state, uh, you know, military assistance, things like that, that, that Andrew's noted in his book. Um, but you're certainly right that that Pakistan tried to play that uh, China's our all-weather card, and I, and I think that's very much what, what Pakistan was doing, was um, at times when the U.S. was becoming frustrated um, or was voicing its frustrations uh, to try to get policymakers spun up by pointing to China um, and embracing them more closely. And, you know, and I always thought from a, a policy perspective, our best response was probably to say, sure, okay, go ahead, go to China. Um, you're not going to get nearly as much in economic assistance from them as you are from us. You're not going to get nearly as much in military assistance as you are from us. You're certainly not going to get F-16s, although it's questionable whether we should really be giving Pakistan F-16s. So, you know, go ahead. I thought we should be much more sort of sanguine about that response. Um, I think the flip side, though, is is, is equally important, which is that uh, you know, from a academic think tank perspective, for a long time, and I, I certainly saw this before I went into government. You know, one of the things that I would repeatedly hear was we should try to engage China more um, and get them to work with Pakistan to make some of those changes 
that we want to see made. Like not supporting um, violent non-state actors or beyond that? Um, that that is the start, or, or at least beginning to take steps against those violent non-state actors. Uh, you know, I work a lot on Lashkri Taiba, and you know, people would point out that LAT is believed to have trained people from ETIM. Um, ETIM being, being the East uh, uh, Turkestan Islamic uh, Movement, which is the main threat in Xinjiang province. Um, and so that we should try to prevail on China to prevail on Pakistan to take steps uh, against some of these these militant groups. Um, and what's been interesting to me has been to see uh, what China has been willing and not willing to do. Um, and for the most part, I don't think we've had very much success. Um, even though we have a confluence of interests on that issue with China, our, our approaches are very different. Um, because China's approach to counterterrorism with Pakistan is to be very discreet and say, we want you to go after these actors um, and these actors only, um, and they are very, very targeted uh, in that regard. Um, but over the last couple of years, I think we have seen China perhaps, at least in terms of like UN sanctions and things like that, not stepping in to carry Pakistan's water as much as they used to. Uh, and so the, ne- the needle is moving slightly, though not nearly as much as we would like. Okay. And uh, before I turn to Josh, I just want to mention that he's from Oregon. Um, Oregon. 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 Tomorrow morning, uh, when this podcast will be posted on War on the Rocks, we'll all know who won, whether it was Oregon or Ohio State. So Josh is either going to be happy or sad tomorrow. I just want you listeners to, you know, send them some sympathy notes if Oregon loses uh, at the Stimson Center website where I'm sure you can find his email. Gracious. Gracious. Josh, <laughs> now, uh, what, what do you think about all this? Because I saw you taking some notes. So. Detailed notes. You know, I, I think one of the great things about Andrew's book, just to put in a little bit of a plug, is that it, uh, it documents many of the weird disconnects between Pakistan and China that have featured throughout this relationship. At the level of their military engagement, you know, the early generation of Pakistani officers trained at Sandhurst, the early generation of Chinese officers, uh, they came of age during the Long March. Uh, China and Pakistan have very different visions of Pakistan's identity and its view of itself. They have different visions of um, how much China has and ought to provide in financial assistance. So there are all of these sort of strange cultural and historical disconnects. And to this, this broader question, so many of those disconnects actually don't play to the American disadvantage. They actually play to our advantage because the Pakistanis play up a grandiose vision of the relationship. But at the end of the day, as Stephen said, Pakistanis who are very well connected, who actually look at the budgets, know that there's only so much that China can provide, or that there's a very high discount factor to whatever $10 billion project is announced tomorrow. You know, you divide it by seven or by 10 to figure out what's what's actually going to, to materialize. So the disconnect in the cultures and in the level of expectation, I think, actually plays to the U.S. advantage in a significant way. And I think that's why, as Stephen said, the U.S. response quite sensibly is that uh, this isn't a relationship that should be discouraged, but it's actually one that makes some sense. The U.S. is relatively happy that China exerts a modicum of influence over Pakistan, even if it's in a narrow lane, Mm -hmm. only the bad guys they care about. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think the U.S. should should see it as a bad thing. And what's great about the book is it it traces all these weird ways in which this is the relationship that never should have happened 
but for structural geopolitical reasons, it continues to make sense. Okay. Um, what's sort of the, the state of China-Pakistan mill-mill relationships, like beyond military assistance? To what extent are Chinese military and Pakistani officers working together, uh, doing exercises together? They do exercises together, but as, as Joshua was alluding to, um, the striking thing about the China-Pakistan military relationship, and he, in another context, has, has talked about it as being almost a gigantic procurement relationship. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a relationship that's really characterized by the two sides preparing for joint contingencies. It's not um, a relationship that is really characterized <coughs> by the two sides, even seeing eye to eye on the main factor that brings them together, which is which is India. They've had um, very significant disconnects in terms of their view on tactics um, uh, and strategy when it when it comes to India. Um, so the nature of the cooperation across time has tended to be uh, China gives Pakistan what it needs in terms of equipment, and in one way that wouldn't amount to a, a, a huge amount. Uh, the issue, of course, is that, that China gave Pakistan uh, its nuclear um, bomb and uh, the, the missiles that, that it needed and so this has led to ties between the security services that uh, be between the, the two militaries um, and between the intelligence services and the two sides that go closer in some respects than um, various uh, alliances do. There's, there's a level of, 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 of trust there on, on some sensitive areas that even though the two sides don't necessarily see, see eye to eye on, on their dealings even with, with the shared threat. But the, the tension that's come up most significantly recently between the two sides when Kayani used to go to uh, Beijing, he'd have to spend huge swathes of his time talking about the Uyghur question. Um, it was still an area where China didn't feel that Pakistan was doing enough to deal with the, the Uyghur militant threat, um, because even though the number of the people actually operating in Pakistan was, was small, that was the, the, the largest number of them that were con congregated, were putting out propaganda, um, based in North Waziristan. Um, and this was kind of a continuous source of, of, of tension um, between the two sides and still kind of the, the black mark against the Pakistani military that you, you got on, uh, with, on, on the Chinese side. And it was seen by someone in, in, in China as sort of a symbol of what they really feared about the, the long-term future of the relationship, which is the Islamization of the Pakistani military, mm -hmm. whether this reflects uh, some sympathies on, on Pakistan's part, and whether this starts to put into doubt the sort of secular strategic calculus in the relationship, which is overwhelmingly focused on India, and um, as one uh, Chinese academic put it, um, we, we trust them with uh, a bomb. Uh, if it's a Pakistani bomb, we don't trust them with a bomb if it's an Islamic bomb. Could you, could you uh, talk about Obviously, you know, the Pakistani state has a pretty close relationship with Lashkar-e Taiba. Stephen, you wrote a great book on Lashkar-e Taiba a few years ago, Storming the World Stage. And, uh, God bless you, Ryan. <laughs> and, uh, but that's a very close relationship. In fact, even unique, from what I understand, among militant groups operating out of Pakistan. Um, what sort of relationship do we see between the Pakistani state and these weaker militant groups, to the, to the extent one exists? Um, the... This is a point of some sensitivity between the two sides. It, it's, there are, 
it's implausible that the, the Pakistani military is giving significant levels of, of support to, to these groups. Effectively, the Uyghur militant groups um, are a subset of the IMU, um, and you can make the case that they in turn are a subset of, of the TTP. Um, the Pakistani military have... Uh, IMU being, being Islamic Movement Islamic Pakistan, Pakistan, and Pakistan. TTP, popularly known as the Pakistani Taliban. Um, uh, so it's it's not it's not the case that these groups have been anything other than uh, for in in the main part groups that, that the <coughs> Pakistani military has has been willing to crack down on, but um, there have been uh, pieces of information um, given to the Chinese about uh, ISI agents uh, training camps. There've been uh, there were even at points um, ISI uh, ex ISI agents turning up with. Uh, Uyghur militant groups at, at particular points. So there are these kind of small points of, of, of sensitivity that, that come up, even if even if there isn't um, active uh, backing, visible backing being provided. It's it's too antithetical to, to the nature of the Pakistan-China relationship um, for them to actually provide any level of support. The question has been more one of whether uh, people are given warnings before there are attacks that take place. Um, these sorts of things that there are, there are there's a level of sympathy for for some of these uh, groups, and that there's a level of discomfort with what's being asked for by the Chinese um, when uh, when when some of these pressures pressures are exerted to take action against these groups. Josh. Yeah, I mean, so the weird thing is that if you you know if you were to spend a lot of time reading through Pakistani military journals, which a note to all of you listening at home, this is, you know, don't try this at home. Don't it's, do that. <laughs> it's, 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 it's very painful. But if you were to do that, it's actually you know, striking how infrequently these groups come up or anything related to sort of the, the Uyghurs come up at all. And uh, there are all kinds of groups they talk about. There are all kinds of issues related to China that they talk about. But this is obviously not a top-line concern for strategic thinkers in Pakistan. And given the importance of the relationship, that's a little... That's a little bit strange, but I think you know something. You also but is that just sorry to interrupt? Yeah. Is that just because the sort of topic to discuss openly among the Pakistani officer corps is sort of a taboo topic to discuss openly? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, there are references to Chechens. All you know, are there Pakistanis are so concerned about Chechen militants in the tribal areas. There are probably like seven Chechens in the tribal areas. Uh, it's it's just not a big deal, but it's gained this kind of. Uh, reputation as a problem that we that we can talk about, and the Uyghurs, for whatever reason, are just not that interesting to the strategic community. That said, when Chinese citizens in Pakistan are abducted or kidnapped or run into any kind of trouble, uh, the senior Pakistani leadership responds very quickly and very expeditiously to to Chinese concerns. So there's a concern at the top, but in sort of the broader strategic community, it's not it's not an issue that gets much. Traction. Steven? Yeah, I, mean, I was just going to make uh, a couple of follow-up points on, on, on Andrew's point and also on Josh's. And, you know, the first is, uh, you know, I, I certainly concur with, with the idea that, you know, there's not a whole lot of evidence in terms of support for Uyghur militants from the state. But what there is, and I think what we're increasingly seeing from the Chinese, is, is an awareness and a concern that support for some of the groups that exist in Pakistan impedes Pakistan's ability to manage, much less dismantle, the militant infrastructure. And that militant infrastructure benefits. So by, so by supporting, let's say, LET, that has a cascade effect across the entire militant milieu, in other words? Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, as, as others have, have said and have written, the bad guys don't stay in their lanes. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so 
given you know ongoing passive and active support for some of these groups, that ha that creates a beneficial opportunity you know operating environment for 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 Uyghur militants, um, and that is I think a, a cause for concern for for the Chinese. What's what's interesting is, and I think you know Andrew, you touch on this, is the way that, that the Chinese have sought about dealing with this, um, which has been to work sort of very specifically with the Pakistanis to try to get them to go after specific Uyghurs to try to work on the you know intelligence exchange at times to handle this themselves unilaterally in country something the Pakistanis have allowed and that when they have voiced wait could you go back to that so the Chinese have actually sent well I Andrew's written about this so I'll let him no, no, talk don't. about it a little bit more but but <laughs> um, that's you, know, a, you know in the context <laughs> of the, cause I think no no, no oh, most, sorry when I say when I say unilaterally I don't mean uh, unilateral action the way we would look at it militarily I mean okay um you know, during the law of Moscow, you mean like I a think. Bin Laden raid I no, no, no. I mean, like it, engaging in in discussions and talks and negotiations with militants in the country. Okay. Um, yeah. Not not unilateral. Not not like a Bin Laden raid. Um, not direct action. Not direct action. <laughs> like the way we would think about it. Um, but I but I do think it's 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 interesting the way that, that the Chinese have gone about this and the fact that they have very rarely voiced public uh, disapproval. Um, and so you were talking, you were asking earlier about our approach to this. Right? We, we constantly in public for a long time had a refrain of do more, do more, we want to see action against this group and that group. And the Chinese very rarely would say anything publicly, but when they did, I mean the Pakistanis would jump to respond uh, because that was a, a, a real shot across the bow for them. Um, and so I think that is, is very much worth noting um, in terms of the Chinese concerns and the Chinese approach. The other thing I was just going to say uh, that you touched on, Andrew, and I, I'd actually be curious to hear you tease this out a little bit more, because I heard this from a, a Chinese think tanker at an NDU event, National Defense University event last year, um, say, you know, one of our concerns is the potential Islamization of the military. Um, this is a very odd relationship for us, Right. We're, we're a secular communist country, um, at least in theory, and we have a relationship with, you know, with the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Um, and, but if the, if the army, if the military becomes more Islamist or becomes Islamized over time, that potentially imperils our relationship. Um, and so I think your, your mentioning that was quite, quite interesting, and I'd, I'd actually be curious to hear you expand on that a little bit. Yeah, so just to, to add, I mean, in, in the same way that there aren't very many Chechens, there aren't very many Uyghur militants. I mean, this may be in the number of you know, tens of people, um, is the count that some of the Chinese who would go out to the areas and kind of talk to people there would, would, would come up with. So um, these aren't necessarily uh, large numbers, it's just that it's, 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 a, it's a sensitive subject, partly because it is treated as, a, as well as a symbol of these, of these broader questions. And it matters, of course, just because it's the only group that is specifically targeting um, China effectively um, in, in the region, but it matters as well because it gets into these broader questions about the relationship and is used as kind of a, a totemic case. If, if Pakistan cracks down effectively on this group, then it means all is, is well. Uh, if, if not, it means there's maybe some, some slightly more worrying things going on. And there was a phase where more of these 
members of these groups were being killed in US drone strikes than were being killed by the Pakistani military. There was a number of years where China would put out a list of, of these people. Um, the leaders were being um, uh, taken down uh, across a particular stretch of time um, by attacks in North Waziristan in particular and, um, uh, and, and also some, some in, in, in Afghanistan um, too. And, and this, was, this was a point of sensitivity. The Pakistani um, army were not, were not hitting any of the targets on, on, on China's list. Um, and this has played into um, in, into some of these uh, in, into some of these longer term concerns. What the Chinese will uh, who, who deal with the Pakistani military will say is that they're very comfortable with the the generals, but um, as you get lower down, um, they their level of discomfort starts to grow, and they're they're not sure about whether um, uh, in you know in another ten years uh, whether this looks like the same uh, calculus for them. Um, and I mean, they, the the current Pakistani military leadership they have, uh, despite some of these these questions, quite a high level of of, of trust in, but um, they're not sure on the kind of post Zia generations coming through what that's going to translate into. For them. Can I ask a question? Do you think the Chinese really get? Pakistan? Do you think they they really understand? Because you know the U.S. engagement with the Pakistan military, the United States has many of the same concerns about the military. But at the same time, we interact mostly with general officers, uh, occasionally with colonels and majors, but not that far down the chain. And when I've talked to to Chinese officials and think tankers, uh, I get the sense that, that their experience is actually not that much different from. Ours. Do you do you think they understand what's happening in the military, or do you think they're a little bit uh, sort of befuddled, and their befuddlement breeds uh, concern, and their and then their concern is what we uh, is what gets communicated to us. And let me layer a question on top of that, which is, how much do you think beyond getting the Pakistan military? I mean, to the to the larger question of how much do they get Pakistan? I mean, how much brain power is being thrown at trying to understand? Pakistan in China right now. Um, you know, we there was a period of time where there were a lot of people looking from an analytical perspective, from an academic perspective, from a think tank perspective. Pakistan was like the country to sort of you know, or one of the countries to try to focus on and understand. I'm curious whether you found that the Chinese really get and understand what's going on over there, or whether this is more of a turnkey operation for them. Um, on the last point, I think the answer is very few. In terms of the kind of broader strategic community in, in China, people looking at Pakistan, let alone Afghanistan, um, is a relatively small number. Um, what there is, is is a large number of people in the in, in the military and in the military intelligence um, uh, services in particular, who one often doesn't necessarily always get to talk to. I mean, the, there's, if you look at US... China exchanges on Pakistan, and it's the same for a lot of people trying to understand the relationship through Chinese eyes. Um, there are large sort of sectors of, of the Chinese uh, uh, military and intelligence services that, that one doesn't really interact with um, very much vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan. And even when you do talk to these people about, uh, about, about it, um, there's more brick walls from, from, from a number of these people. Um, in theory, there's, there's a large number of, of, of people on the Chinese side who've had um, exposure in Pakistan. Um, there are, uh, I mean, the, the, the military um, companies, um, uh, most of their arms sales are still to Pakistan. It's the, it's the majority of Chinese arms sales are, are going there. Um, it's, uh, so, I mean, these, these military companies in China, have, of course, involve some of 
China's um, storied communist um, party families, um, and these the the links um, are quite deep in the deep state on on, on the Chinese side. Um, understanding how much that group gets Pakistan um, is harder than in a number of other areas of. Um, Sorry. No, no, go um, uh, uh, Than in a number of other areas of, of Chinese foreign policy. This is still a relatively protected um, relationship. Um, it, it, one US ambassador to, to, to China said this is still the only relationship that China won't talk to us about um, properly. Everything else they've opened up on. Um, still, you have to be a little bit humble about um, how much you can really penetrate into uh, their understanding, uh, in, in, into China's um, take on, on the Pakistan um, relationship. Um, I'd like to pivot, joke, I'd like to pivot a little bit to some broader issues. Uh, first, I'd like to talk about uh, China and Afghanistan. Then I'd also, which was we just touched on briefly, and then I'd like to uh, turn to India and talk about their look east. Um, what what is China? What are China's interests in Afghanistan? We've heard uh, some whispers about them being involved or in at least exploring the Taliban seriousness about some sort of negotiations process, which I'm um, pretty skeptical about in terms of the Taliban's interest in any negotiations process. Um, what what's the nature of China's interests? Why does China obviously China borders on Afghanistan, but not on a particularly restive part of it, and uh, no, nothing that it couldn't contain otherwise. What are China's interests in Afghanistan? And, and why don't we kick off with you, and then we'll move around the room. We'll skip our, we actually have a mystery guest here, also from the UK, um, who can't talk, apparently. Um, but is wearing Air Jordans. Yeah, he, he yes. is wearing, that's true, I didn't notice that. You're wearing Air Jordans. I didn't even know they still made those. Yeah. How long ago did you buy them? Can you give us a hand signal? Two years ago? Alright. Anyway. Two, two score years ago. <laughs> two yeah, score years two ago. Score. Were they made in China? Can we connect this to the, Yeah. So, Andrew. <laughs> um, so, as you noted in your introduction, the border element is almost a non-thing. Um, so, uh, they, they were made in China, we just verified. <laughs> Go on, Andrew. Uh, it's, it's, the one, it's the one country that China borders on where, effectively, there is no border infrastructure. Um, every time the Afghans ask them to try to, to, to open it up and provide some connection, the Chinese don't want to do it. Um, it's the closest thing to not really being a neighbor of China's uh, neighbors. Um, China's interest there has been minimal, um, except when there's been either a sense of geopolitical threat, as there was with the Soviet Union um, in, in the past, and to a certain extent with the US presence, where there were fears about encirclement, um, or where there's been a perceived threat from militant groups setting up operations there, as there was in the uh, in the late uh, 90s under the Taliban, um, and primarily that's their, their concern now, that the post-2014 environment is going to again lead to a situation like in the 90s when Uyghur militant groups, ETIM, were able to uh, set up the most sort of substantial uh, safe haven space that they have uh, ever been able to, to, to have in the country. Um, so China's uh, there are, of course, in theory, a set of economic interests um, as well, China's mineral, mineral investments there, but really I think these can be overemphasized. I think there's a kind of take-it-or-leave-it quality that, um, that exists for, for most of those um, investments. If, if, none of, if the INAC copper mine never comes through, um, I don't really think China cares a great deal um, about that, nor their oil investments, particularly in the north. They're still primarily focused on Afghanistan through um, a security lens, 
environments. And in the post-2014 environment, they have relatively simple um, concerns, which are a stable environment in the country and no safe havens. And it's it's not actually a hugely uh, a hugely complex set of calculations that they they have beyond that. Stephen, um, yeah, I mean, I I, I I would agree with with what Andrew said. And I'm I'm struck. You know, I I, I tend to think sometimes that uh, China. From an economic perspective, China is very important for, for Afghanistan and for Pakistan and for those parts of South and Central Asia. Um, those parts of South and Central Asia are far less important for China economically, right? So there's a, there's a real disconnect there. Um, from, a, from a security perspective, um, I mean, you know, one of the things that I've been curious about is, is uh, you know, given the, the new agreement um, to pursue CT cooperation with with uh, with Kabul, whether that will look very similar to the type of CT cooperation that um, that China has with Pakistan, um, and, and more than that, I mean, whether China can be whether the U.S. has opportunities to burden share with China uh, on a security front in Afghanistan, um, you know, and if so, what would that look like? Um, you know, what type of security assistance would they pledge? Um, would what they're doing be interoperable with what we're doing? Um, and, and where else could they pick up the load? Um, you know, I mean, with Ghani in office now, I think there's the potential for better border coordination. Is that a place where China could be the adult in the room if the U.S. couldn't be the adult in the room? Um, I know that that, that is a, a pejorative way to put it. Um, I'm fine with being being pejorative, pejorative. Um, you know, and I think, I think those are all. I think those are all open questions. Um, you know, it's, and it's just unclear to me really what China is prepared to commit right now, um, from a from that perspective in in, in Afghanistan. Um, the other thing I would just mention, and this is a bit off off the beaten path, but because we are talking about China's security concerns coming out of Afghanistan in terms of Uyghur safe havens. Um, and just to sort of broaden the geopolitical lens a little bit is, you know, one of the questions that I've sort of had looking at this um, more broadly is this potentially creates a security conundrum for China in Central Asia, um, where it has a lot of economic investment as well. Um, and it seems that up until this point, China's been content, and, and you know, I'd certainly be interested in, in Andrew and as well as Josh's take on this, content to kind of let Russia be in the lead from a political security perspective in Central Asia and just to focus on the economics. The question is, if there's a security threat coming up through Central Asia or if there's a threat to China's interests in Central Asia, does it then begin to become more muscular in terms of security cooperation, security assistance, and what does that mean for Sino-Russia you know, uh, relations? Um, so I, those to me are all open questions um, in, in terms of the, the security space with regard to Afghanistan. Um, I do want us to try to return to those issues, but I'd also like to, I'd like to turn to uh, India. Uh, before I do that, War on the Rocks tradition, we have to go around the room and discuss what we're drinking. Uh, Andrew, what are you having? This is a Tempranillo. Okay. Very good. How is it? It's, it's excellent. Great. And uh, we always have a great time here at the Jefferson Hotel's Cool Bar. They've always been great hosts. Uh, great hosts for War on the Rocks ever since actually we did our first podcast here. So 
I highly recommend the Quill Bar if you haven't been before. Stephen, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking a Sazerac. It's good. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah? Do you normally... Is that, I don't think I've ever seen you drink a Sazerac before. Uh, well, then you were pretty drunk uh, many of the other times we've been here together. <laughs> it's certainly possible. Josh? I'm drinking a whiskey sour with uh, an unknown whiskey. An unknown. An unknown. He just asked for something smooth. Asked right. for something smooth. I'm, I'm happy not knowing. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's better. Sometimes it's just better. Uh, and I'm drinking a nice uh, Sangiovese. I've put aside the brown liquor for tonight's podcast. Um, so anyway, India. Um, there isn't. I wouldn't call it a reorientate a re reorientation in India's foreign policy, but maybe a reorientation in focus under Modi. A lot more engagement with Asia. Is that fair to fair to say? I would say there is a reorientation okay. under Modi. It's a reorientation in the, uh, the Indian government for the first time in a long time, expressing a uh, comfort in engaging with trade powers like the United States without feeling like their foreign policy has to be zero-sum. Under the last Indian government, there was very much this sense in New Delhi that, well, if we engage with the United States, that means that that accrues to... Um, that, that could create a problem with us, with Russia or with China or any other country. This is a much more confident government. So I think you see that in their engagement with the United States, but also they're really trying to put some substance behind what's been called the Look East policy, which has been something that's been on the books for a long time, it has been talked about for a long time, about which India has done very little. Now, They've actually thought that they've done something about it, but if you, if you, you know, my friends who have wandered around Burma and Thailand and uh, and other places will say that the actual substance of this policy hasn't been realized in Southeast Asia thus far. So they're putting a lot of energy in, into trying to engage with Southeast Asia. We see this with their relationship with Vietnam, with Singapore, certainly with Japan, uh, with Australia. Uh, and there's a lot more energy there. So I would say it's, it's different. And the United States sees, is seeing India in somewhat of a different way, not because our strategic vision has changed, because there's actually energy in India to do something. Is that a good thing from a Washington perspective? And when you say you're engaging with these countries, what, what is the substance of these engagements? What is the it's, substance of India's diplomatic activity? It's, it's a good thing. The, the underlying premise of U.S. policy toward India is that India's rise is going to be good for us, regardless of whether this looks like a formal alliance structure or a partnership. Whatever we call it, in, a strong India is going to be good for the United States. And we're happy to see India engage east with Burma. And I think some of the smarter things the U.S. is doing here is trying to build connectivity and trying to facilitate where we can the actual substance of India engaging east with Southeast Asia and with, you know, in, in the security space with Vietnam and with Japan and others. Uh, even if that means that Pakistan feels a little bit left out. I mean, Pakistanis often come to me and say, hey, are, are we part of the rebalance? I say, I regret to inform you, you are not part of the rebalance. <laughs> it's a very important relationship. We care very much about Pakistan. It's going to be important for the future, but you did not quite make the cut for the rebalance. And so to the extent that the U.S. is trying to shift resources to Asia, I think we include India as part of that shift. And our, you know, most Americans are delighted to see India actually engaging with Australia in a more substantive way, with Japan and these other countries, not because it's a containment strategy for China, but because it gives Southeast Asian countries a number of options for engaging in military exercises, economic engagement, infrastructure, that I think will redound to our advantage. 
Steve? Um, yeah, I, I would I would add to that, um, and, and also to, to um, bring back to China as well, that uh, one of the things I think we've seen from the Modi government is a readiness to, to do more to build up the infrastructure in the Northeast uh, to support uh, the type of military presence that, you know, Along the border with China. Along the border with the China that he and his government believe is needed in order to, you know, to, to protect India's interests uh, along that border. Um, you know, I, there was... Um, India was not shy about protesting vigorously to Sri Lanka after, you know, Chinese sub made a, a port visit um, to the Sri Lankans, uh, uh, to the port there. Um, you know, so I think there's been a readiness to... Uh, be a little bit more forward-leaning in the China space. Uh, Modi, I think it was when he was in in Japan, I don't remember where he was, but, but basically said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing here, that economic expansion um, you know, across borders is good, but the territorial expansion across borders is, is bad. And that was very much seen as a shot across cough China's, China's, cough. Cough China's yeah. back. But you, what you're doing in South China Sea is not cool. Um, you know, China. So there's, I mean, I think there's a real readiness, um, or at least more of a readiness than there was before uh, on the part of, of the government in New Delhi to, to sort of confront these issues. Uh, what I think is interesting, again, to bring it back to the, to the China-Pakistan relationship, is the way in which um, that doesn't necessarily mean that Pakistan is no longer uh, a variable in India's calculations, right? There's, I think, sometimes this misnomer that well, militarily, all India is focused on is China. And it's certainly true that India is very much focused on, on China. But at the same time, um, and I'd be curious to hear Andrew's thoughts on this, you know, there is this, I think, still sense in New Delhi that a potential war with China would, would bring Pakistan in. And so that you need to be prepared for a two-front war. Um, and so you still see India upgrading and preparing its forces to fight to the west as well as to fight to the north and the east. Andrew, why don't you uh, give your thoughts on that and then we'll have a closing word for everybody and then we'll wrap up for the for this this time. Yeah, I mean the two front war concept that was uh, in in one way had had sort of disappeared. It doesn't really apply in the in the other way around, um, right. uh, which which is what's interesting about where it's <laughs> moved. Previously, um, it was a question of whether China would intervene in a war between Pakistan and India, and the answer conclusively has been almost certainly not, unless India does something so outrageous that um, uh, that that uh, that the culpability falls so far on that side that you, you could start to think about that. But given the dynamics and given given what actually takes place, it's almost come off the table as a um, as, as as a factor in, in, in India's calculus. But the other way around looks um, looks potentially um, looks potentially different. But at Pakistan the oh sorry no, say, Pakistan has been um, repeatedly disappointed at the uh, allies who are not prepared or partners who are not prepared to intervene on its side when it goes to war with India. But this also kind of points back to the role that Pakistan plays regardless, even for China. The, the utility that, that Pakistan has is still that India is forced to look in the other direction, even if it wished mm -hmm. to it, 
uh, channel its entire energies in China's direction, um, it can't. So Pakistan fulfills a role for China just by being and doing what it would, um, what it would otherwise want to be. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and the Chinese may not like the precise form that Pakistan being difficult takes all the time. I think they'd rather the relationship looked a bit like the one between China and India um, in terms of a kind of more managed um, uh, mm -hmm. instability between the two sides, and that's what the Chinese will always emphasize to, to the Pakistanis. But um, however it plays out on, on, on the Pakistani side, Pakistan plays that role for, for, for China, and China can always kind of tweak when it, when it wants to with, with these things. When the U.S.-India relationship um, looks as if it's getting too close, uh, the Chinese can just um, uh, come up with a, a little counterplay on, on the Pakistani side. You saw that even with the, the nuclear deal where the, the Chashma um, uh, uh, power reactors that were given to the Pakistanis were, were clearly a political counterplay and there's, there's, there's a number of these um, there's a number of these areas where uh, China can still use the Pakistan uh, relationship to, to, to tweak India when look east turns too much into act east. All right, uh, 30 seconds, last 30 seconds for everybody. Stephen, you first. Um, so, I mean, I think... Um, you just Andrew, took up like seven I seconds. I just took up like seven seconds putting my drink down right there. Um, to me, one of the, the fundamental questions, uh, and Andrew hit on it in terms of the, the India as the thing that brings China and Pakistan together, is at what point, and, and it's unclear if this will ever happen, but, but at what point does the geopolitical concern uh, get superseded by the internal security concern that China has um, in terms of the Uyghur question, um, and, and at what point does internal security trump geopolitics for China? Um, will that happen, and how will China handle that uh, with Pakistan? Um, could that fundamentally change the relationship? Josh? So one of the many reasons you should buy Andrew's book is because it highlights again and again the fundamentally, fundamentally pragmatic nature of the Chinese relationship with Pakistan. And I think even though the Pakistanis wouldn't want to hear this, in many ways there are analogs to China's relationship with North Korea. You have... Uh, <laughs> so they definitely, you definitely, well, they definitely they don't want to hear they, that. They don't want to hear that. But there is a state that is seen by the outside world as a problematic state, but that presents some utility to Chinese foreign policy in the neighborhood. They want it to survive but not implode. And it also, write presents, that article for us. And it also presents, uh, it, you know, some domestic issues right across the, the borders. Mm. Um, and I think there we've also seen the shift in China's policy slowly over time to be more pragmatic and to put pressure where they can. Mm. And we're seeing the same thing in Pakistan and now Afghanistan. And I think the book traces this very well and the sort of the pattern of learning by the Chinese to recognizing what they can get from Pakistan and what they can't. Uh, and so for that reason alone, this is uh, this should be on your bookshelf. Thirty seconds for our mystery guest. We got to give you full thirty seconds. All right, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to try and pull those two kind of closing points together, actually, um, when you look, when China looks east, um, it's largely an environment of strategic competition with with the United States that's intensifying. Uh, when China looks west. Increasingly, it's an area in which U.S. and Chinese interests um, are becoming more consonant. Um, Afghanistan is the focal point for it, um, but even Pakistan, um, the two sides have come closer together in their thinking. It's still a special relationship. It's still a protected relationship in, in all sorts of respects um, for, for China, um, but it's an area where... Uh, 
as it has in, in the past in the US-China relationship, um, Pakistan has, has kind of been a, a, a bridge for the two sides, and the region as a whole um, has had this sort of uh, interesting role as a, as, as a bridge for the US-China um, relationship. And, and actually, I, I, whether I, I wouldn't go as far as the North Korea um, uh, example, but um, there, there are uh, concerns on a significant scale about what happens in, in, in Pakistan on, on China's part. And even the most sort of sensitive areas of the worst case scenarios in Pakistan are the sorts of things that China is now talking to the US about in a way that it, it wasn't willing to a few years ago. Great. Well, thanks, gentlemen, for uh, joining us for another Warren Rocks podcast. And I hope uh, to have you all on it again. Uh, and thank you for listening.